You're listening to the Steve Freeman Podcast, the real raw truth about the pursuit of success in music, business, and life. Here's your host, hit songwriter, multi-platinum selling producer, and serial entrepreneur, Steve Freeman. I'm Steve Freeman. Welcome back to the Steve Freeman podcast. I've been looking forward to today's episode. We're going to have a great conversation. You're going to learn a lot. Clayton Bellamy joins me today on the Steve Freeman podcast. Before we jump in, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. The reviews are extremely important. Apple sent us an email. They're like, hey, you need to encourage all of your listeners to leave reviews. That's what their algorithm loves. So if you haven't given us a written review on uh, Apple Podcasts, please do that. Give us five stars. Also, don't forget, follow me on social media at the Steve Freeman across all social media platforms and become a member of of my inner circle. You can do that at the Steve Freeman. You get the music business blog and a bunch of other really cool stuff. But like I said, you got to do it. You got to go to the website, thestevefreeman.com. All right, let's jump into today's episode. We got a lot to get to, and I'm very pleased to welcome in uh, my buddy, Clayton Bellamy. You probably know him from the Road Hammers. We're going to talk about his new project. But in case you didn't know, Clayton is a Juno Award winner for Best Country Album. He's a five-time Canadian Country Music Award winner. He is also the winner of the coveted SoCan Songwriter of the Year Award. He's been featured in People Magazine, the New York Times, Rolling Stone, and has even performed at the coveted church, grandmother church of country music, the Grand Ole Opry. Clayton, it's good to have you here. Thanks for having me, brother. Yeah, man, absolutely. It's it's feels like it's you and I connected again for the first time um, a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago, but maybe a month or so ago. And uh, it, it's been a while since we talked, but man, it, it is good to good to reconnect with you and get back with you and, and find out what's going on with you. Before we get to the new thing, which I want to spend a lot of time on, I kind of want you to, to take us back to the beginning and, and talk to us about how you got started in the industry, how you joined the Road Hammers, and, and kind of bring us up to the point of where we are right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's, it's a bit of a sordid tale, <laughs> but I was, uh, you know, I think like any other kid who wanted to, to, to be in music, you know, I just had uh, this desire to, to play and to write songs was something that I always gravitated to. Uh, so I, I went off and uh, studied music business and uh, vocal performance at a college here out in Canada um, in Red Deer. And, uh, you know, I tried to further my education and, and, and start, start learning about how, how this whole crazy business works. And from there, I started playing in bands in college. And back then, when I, when I, was, when I was touring around, it was, uh, you could still play you know, five, six nights a week in a, in a cover band and, and tour steady. And that's what we started doing. And the, pretty much the day that I got out of college, I, uh, I took a loan out from my dad and bought a, a, a one ton box band and a, and a PA system. And me and my college buddies started touring around, um, Canada playing in every honky tonk and, and grungy bar that, that would hire us. And that, that didn't last very long. I think we, the band broke up within six months and we got fired a few times and, and most of, mostly everybody in the band kind of went to hell with this. It's too hard. And, uh, I guess I was just too stubborn to quit. And uh, I started, that's when I started officially my, what, what would become Clayton Bellamy band at the time. And, and uh, started writing and recording original music. Uh, in 99, I put out my first solo record. And, uh, back when you actually had to record it on tape, the good old <laughs> days, myself out here. yeah, exactly. Well, I put up my first record in 99 and, and then I followed that up with another one in 2001. I sold, uh, I basically sold everything I owned to make that record. I sold my car, I sold my dirt bike and, uh, and I begged board and sealed, stole, uh, studio time to get, get that record made. And that kind of put me, it, it won me, uh, what, what out here is called an Alberta Recording Industry Award, which is basically a you know a a, a state statewide uh, you know, award for for best recording, and that kind of really got my my feet in the industry and got my name known around the the province and in 
became a, a kind of a local artist that people knew. And I started touring from there all over the place in, you know, in down into the States playing colleges and universities and, and, and again, every single honky tonk and, and casino and you name it that would have us. And I eventually, uh, worked my way up to a point where people in the industry kind of in Canada anyway, known me, um, and, and some folks in the States, my, my, my second record was, was, uh, mixed and mastered by, uh, Grammy award winner, uh, Ray Kennedy, uh, of Steve Earl fame, because I met him in a, in a donut shop in Nashville, uh, downtown one day. And I, I, I followed him out of a music store into, into the donut shop. And then, uh, I basically asked him to, to uh, work on my record and he said, yes, that so is that awesome. Cool. People don't, yeah, I tell people all the time, they, they relationships are everything. It's so true. And you know, I, I, he was in the, you know, remember that old music store that was down uh, over by losers in that area. Of town? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And I, I can't remember what it was called, but he, he was in there and I overheard him talking about, um, making the new Steve Earl record. And I was just like, who is this guy? And then as I listened more, I'm like, Oh my, I figured out, Holy shit. This guy is, this is Ray Kennedy. So he went out of there and into the coffee shop right around the back. And I just followed him stood in, in line behind us. And I struck up a conversation and lucky for me, Ray loves to talk. And uh, we, we just started chatting away and uh, he asked me to send him my record. So I literally dropped it in a FedEx box that afternoon and, and overnighted it to him. And, um, he loved what he heard and he, he decided to do the mix and master on it. And, and, uh, the way we went, our, our relationship, we ended up doing two other records together over the years and, uh, we're still really close friends. Man, you know, the thing about it is, and I, I want you to continue, but I want to, I want to break in right there for a second. That story right there is, is the perfect example of what I think new artists that are coming up right now, they will never have an understanding for. They'll never understand what it was like then to actually be able to have those interactions with people and build relationships in the music business. Because now the people that that would be considered at Ray's level are completely unattainable. And it's that was such a great period. And and I'm almost positive and convinced that that is why that period there was such a boom and explosion of music because the people that were involved and engaged in making it at the highest levels were available and willing to work with this guy. He had no idea from, from Canada and, you know, was down here and, and look at the relationship that you built, the great records that you made. And and I think that just is such an important thing that, that new artists need to realize and need to understand that they don't have those opportunities that you and I had coming up to make and, and, and have those types of relationships. And that to me is what's missing in our business today is that everybody wants to act like they're too good. Every, well, I, you know, I, I can't deal with that. That artist hasn't sold a million records. I'm not writing or, or working with them on their project. And, and it's such a sad thing. It, it really is to me. Yeah, you know, there was a really magical kind of time in Nashville at that, in that period. And I think it still has that kind of magic that you can just, you never know who you're going to run into. But there was definitely an openness at that time. Uh, and, you know, and that, like I said, turned into a great opportunity in a relationship. It ended up when I moved to Nashville the very first time, I didn't know a soul in town. And uh, I'd actually just been robbed of everything I owned. So when I originally came to Nashville, um, I didn't have a thing on my back. I had just the, the clothes on my back. I should say a thing on my back. I didn't own a thing. They'd been completely robbed because I had loaded everything into my truck to move here and they, they took it all. So I showed up with, with my, my truck and the clothes on my back and Ray, his wife, Shavon, helped me out, got me a jo- my first job at Bobby's Dairy Dip down uh, on, on East End, East Nashville. And uh, man, I, I met more people working at Bobby's Dairy Dip <laughs> that's where all the musicians were going to hang out uh, than than anywhere else, and it just became a you know a fixture in in kind of part of the lexicon of Nashville. That is amazing. It, it's but there again, you know what? It's something I preach all the time, and that is I am finding a distinct 
lack of willingness for most new artists to actually do what they have to do in order to do what they want to do. And when you look at somebody like yourself and you see this constantly over and over and over again, the artists that new artists look up to or go, God, I wish I had that career or I wish I was working with that producer or writing with these writers. They want to be like those people, but they don't want to do what they had to do to get there. It's always a funny thing to me. So to hear you say that, you're obviously creative. You've always been a songwriter and a phenomenal artist. You come to Nashville and you find yourself working at the Dairy Bar. And, and that's, but that's, the, that's the jump off point. That's the leading point to get you where you are today. I think that is so valuable that people need to hear that. We all have, though, if you want to get where we are, you have to work at the Dairy Bar. <laughs> I mean, you know, the dairy bar may be something else for somebody else. It may be changing oil down at Jiffy Loop, you know, but, but you, you, you've got to do what you have to do in order to do what you want to do. That that's awesome, man. I, I didn't know that about you. Yeah. hundred percent. I agree with you. That's what they call, you know, putting in your time or cutting your teeth or whatever, you know, there's a million ways to, to things to call it, but, but that was really what it was. And, and, uh, I spent a year at that point, I spent a year in Nashville working at the Dairy Dip and writing songs. And, and basically I would, I would be at Ray's studio every minute that I didn't have, uh, uh, work or, or, or writing sessions, but I, you know, I would be there just hanging out because if, at that time too, you never know who would come in there. I sat in on Steve Earle sessions and Lucinda sessions. I sat in, you know, some of the greatest songwriters would walk through the door and I'd have no idea who they were. And Ray would be introducing me and, and I would just be fetching coffee and hanging out. And, uh, and it was really a great time for me. And actually I spent, I spent a year there and then I moved back to Canada and I was back home for about maybe three months and was kind of feeling really disheartened. Like I was, like things weren't happening for me. I was thinking of actually maybe even getting out of music when I got a phone call from an artist in Canada who was very successful, Jason McCoy, who he had just won the uh, male vocalist of the year in Canada and had, had, had uh, multiple platinum records in, in Canada. He was an artist on uh, universal and uh, he called me out of the blue wanting to know if I would be interested in an audition for a new band that he put it together. And I almost turned it down. My wife at the time actually was one who said, maybe you should uh, take this guy up on this. So I, I drove, to Calgary, I drove a few hours down the road to Calgary and met with him. And he gave me an audition tape uh, of six songs to play. And at that point, I had kind of played a little bit of lead guitar, but I was I wouldn't consider myself a lead guitar player. And he gave me he was that's what he was looking for. He was kind of a rock and roll guy to his country for this time he was putting together. So he gave me this tape of six songs, and I only had two weeks, but I didn't come up for air. I don't think I I even slept in those two weeks barely. I, all I did was try to master those six songs and learn the guitar solos as best I could to basically fake my way into this band because I I knew after meeting him and hearing all of the things that he had going on that that this was going to be the opportunity of a lifetime. And, you know, when when the when the door cracks a little bit, you, you know, it's a, I, I'm my, I'm a big believer. My favorite saying is the. Uh, there's no such thing as luck. The luck is preparation meeting opportunity. And for me, that was, that was the moment right there. All the preparation I did in leading up to that at, at 27 years old and the, the, the years I'd spent in Nashville flying back and forth and living there and writing and touring on the road and slugging it out in these crummy bars came all down to that one audition. And uh, I walked into that room and I knew the songs better than, than the rest of the band, you know, I knew the tempos, I knew the licks, I knew the words and I had everything prepared. And, and they actually, they didn't tell me this, but they were filming the audition at the time for a television show, which ended up being a, a hit TV show in Canada called the road hammers. Um, and it followed the band around from right from the creation of the band all the way to the release of the record. And then actually the, there was a second season on, um, GAC in America of the band going to America after we got it landed our American deal. But, you know, long story short, I did the audition and he hired me on the spot and 
I never looked back. Six months later, the record was number one. And uh, by the time we were finished our first cross-Canadian tour, the record had gone gold. And it's been 15 years now. Golly, it's it. That just alone, when you say that it's been 15 years, just really makes me feel old. <laughs> I, I remember Isn't that crazy. It is. It's absolutely nuts because I remember that time. I believe that you and I met between those two seasons. You, you, y'all were here in Nashville, and I think that's when we met. And I, I think that's when we met too. Yeah, I was, I was writing again with anyone and everyone, and, and uh, you know, you, I don't know how if it was through our publishers that we got set up on a on a write, but we wrote a killer song, and uh, I I remember that that time because we had just moved to Nashville, and same thing, uh, Jason Priestley. Um, from 90210 fame was uh, was was directing the the second season of the Road Hammers and they were following us around wherever we went. It was a crazy time. We had just been signed to um, uh, a Sony subsidiary from uh, called uh, Montage Music, and uh, man, we had billboards everywhere. It was it was insane. It was a crazy time, and I and I remember. I, I mean, there there had never been. A, a group like the Road Hammers come out of Canada into Nashville. You know, up until that point, it had been, it, to my recollection anyway, it had been a lot of more traditional style country artists. And here comes this, for all intents and purposes, a rock and roll band. I mean, you know, it, it, that's what y'all looked like. The sound was great. It was phenomenal. Y- y- you guys were, were so on it. I mean, you, you had, you had the look, you had the songs, you had the backing. It was like everything kind of came together in this perfect little storm for the road hammers to happen. It really was something I'd never played up until that point in a band where when we finished playing a gig, people were, they, they didn't know what to, what to do. They were, so you always got a reaction with the band. It was, they were, they hated it so much that, or they loved it, but there was no in between with us. And, and, and at that point too, I, I'd never seen a, you know, never played in a band where when you're done playing, you know, record label types are coming up to you and giving you their card and saying, you know, we need to talk. That had never really happened to me before. It had always been kind of a struggle on my own, but with this group, it was kind of, like you said, a perfect storm. Everything would come together and that, that intangible, it thing that magic was was there when we were on the stage. Yeah, that's it's just I remember that time period so well, and I have to tell you, my, I, I I told my wife that that we were I was having you on the podcast today, and she said, you know, out of all the songs you've written, out of the hits you've written, the 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 cuts you've gotten, the the TV and film stuff, and all of that, her favorite song I have ever written is "Bottom of the Bottle." <laughs> that's that's one of my favorites too, man. I, I mean, uh, we we got to get that cut for sure. Well, yeah, we do, so man. It's, it's just it, it's just it's really. And I told her last night. I said, you know what? Probably what I need to do is go in the studio and just reproduce that song and bring it current to to the way it, it would sound today, not the way it was sounded in whatever it was, two thousand three or two thousand four. Uh, and uh, she goes, you really should do that because it, it, it is, it's still my favorite song you've ever written. And it's like, wow. Well, if anything, you should do it to make your wife happy. That, exactly. You know, happy wife, happy life. Boy, isn't that <laughs> the truth. All right. So let's fast forward a little bit. And because I want to talk about the new project, because I want to talk about it from a, a multiple different facets. Tell me about how the congregation came about. It was kind of, uh, it came about organically, I guess, uh, through, like we had just finished our, our last, uh, road hammer record, the squeeze, excuse me. And I was going through, uh, a miserable, you know, uh, breakup. And, uh, I was just in a time in my life where I just was really getting tired of the same old things. I was, you know, in the midst of shedding my skin as who I was as a, as a person in my personal life. And I really needed, felt I needed to do that as an artist. I was, the singer songwriter thing was just not something that I wanted to do at that time. Um, I had put out three solo records that were all, that had all kind of been mediocre at best, um, received. 
And I just didn't want to do that same thing again. It was, wasn't really hitting the mark. So I, uh, I, I started, you know, looking around for ideas and I was in the studio writing with my producer, Scott Baggett, who's done uh, all of the Roadhammer records as well. And, uh, I pulled out an old Joe Cocker, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, um, album and put it on and we started talking about that sound and that feel and I started really going back to who I was as a, as a young man and the music that I really was into and and what that record was on the top of the list for me and I love you know old old soul music and I love gospel and I love riff rock like the Black Crows and Lenny Kravitz and these kind of this kind of music so I, I just decided that we were going to take that sound and take kind of a seed of what I did in the road hammers, which um, Scott would always say was the preacher man. When, when, when Clay, the preacher man was on doing his thing out front of the road hammers, take that element and make a whole record around that. And, and that's essentially what we did. Well, I'll tell you one of the things through the years, every time that your name has come up in conversation I always hear, I always, it, it's so weird because it's the exact, people say the exact same thing. And I think it is probably the hands down best compliment that any artist can ever receive. And that is everybody says when your name comes up, that guy is the best entertainer I've ever seen. And oh, wow. I, I well, it's, I mean, I believe it. I, 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 I agree but I, I, I think that the overall point there is I tell artists when I'm working with them all the time, your goal is not to be an artist. It's to be an entertainer. If you look at superstars, not popular musicians or popular artists, if you look at superstars, they are not just singers. They are entertainers. That is what is the difference between somebody who can have a hit song or a hit single and have a hit career is they are entertainers. Elton John is an entertainer. Um, Taylor Swift is an entertainer. Garth Brooks, entertainer. Um, and so when, pe- when, when we talk about you and people say, that guy, he's the best entertainer I've ever seen and he puts on the best show I've ever seen. Th- that to me is, is the highest praise. It's not like, oh, that guy's a great songwriter or you know the, the record sounded great. It's, you know, he's the best entertainer I've ever seen. You have to go see him live. And- that to me is is the highest form of praise is your shows are extremely highly energetic the the music that you hear you can visualize and imagine what that looks like on stage yeah and it's it, to me that's it's the whole idea of bringing it to life you know the congregation is a it's what i call a rock and roll tent revival and uh if you know what what that means especially down in the south um you know that that gathering of people to celebrate and, and that's really what I wanted it to be. It's very inclusive. It's, it's, it's bringing the audience into to the spectacle and making them a part of it. And that's what I've always, always thought that you're there to do as an, as a, as an artist, as an entertainer. Like you said, people don't, they, they spend their hard-earned money to come out and to escape. It's, going to a concert is about escapism to me. And, it's, and you're, you're the conductor of the magic. And you're up there. And your responsibility is to make sure or to show these people how to have fun or to make sure that they have fun. And, and for me, that's always been bringing them into the song, bringing them into the music and, and, and the whole atmosphere of everything that's going on. And, uh, and this project is like taking that and, and just cranking the dial up to 11. So the, the, uh, the idea when you walk into a show and, you know, there's people at the door handing out uh, welcome to the congregation flyers, almost like you're at a church service, you know? And, and when you come into the, the whole environment and, and it feels like something is going to happen, and, and it does, you know? And, and, and people, uh, again, this is uh, and the, a project, aside from the road hammers, this thing has got a momentum uh, to it that when people come to the show, they, they leave talking about it and and that to me is the is the greatest thing is when when they're excited and they're, and they're telling their friends and and, uh, and and people want to come back 
Well, I got to be honest with you. When I when it, the 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 new album is Welcome to the Congregation by Clayton Bellamy and the Congregation. It came out last Friday, so I pulled it up and bought it and I'm like from 15 seconds into the first song, which the first track is Welcome to the Congregation. I'm like, "Oh my god, we we're going to church." I mean, I mean, this is a church I would go to, you know, and it's like this, it, it, you just put the nail on the head by the, it's like a tent revival. It's like a rock and roll tent revival. And which should be the next, the title of your next album is rock and roll tent revival. I, I, I want credit for that right here now. Um, but that's, that's what it felt like. And it was like, wow, you know, and I don't want to get too far off into this, but I had a conversation recently with somebody about why I don't go to church anymore. And I, I, I haven't been to church in years and years and years. And there are many reasons why, and I'm probably going to do a podcast on it. But when I listen to your record, I believe, honestly, the reason that music has such an effect and an emotional connection with people. And when, when it's right and when it's good, I've said it and I've heard a lot of other people say that it is like a religious experience. And, you know, religious can mean anything to anybody. And I'm telling you, listening to this record is a religious experience. It, it is, it, it makes you feel something. And, you know, I was in a writing session once with Jason Matthews and we were talking about, I think must be doing something right. It was number one in the country. It just written it and it was a huge success. We were talking about writing songs. We were actually out on the road, I believe. And, um, I, I asked him a question or something. He goes, man, to be honest with you, I write songs to make people feel something. He goes, that's my only job. He goes, it, it needs to make people want to dance, laugh, cry, have sex, break up, get back together. It, it, it's got to make you want to do something. And from song one, all the way down through song 13, welcome to the congregation makes you want to do a lot of different things. So I, I, job well done on, on a great record. If, if you have not had the chance to listen to the record yet, go buy it, go stream it. Because there is literally something for everybody on here. I got to be honest with you, Clayton. I, li I, I was listening song after song after song. I'm like, wow, this is great. It can't get any better. And then I got to the healing. And I just, I, that song, oh, yeah. that song is, is, is another level, brother. I mean, it, it is, it is really, really good. You know, that's, uh, we talk about, you know, that, uh, that, that feeling of moving people and, uh, you know, the, the church feeling of, of a religious experience. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. I believe that, you know, in the spirit. And I, I say that all the time, you know, you gotta, you gotta go where the spirit takes you. And that's, that's when you're songwriting, you gotta follow it. When you're, when you're performing, I feel like, you know, I, I don't control the spirit. But I, I, you know, I get to conduct it for a short period of time when I'm on stage. And that's part of it, the magic that you're always, that intangible, the muse or whatever you, uh, you know, different artists call it. Um, and for me, that, that day, uh, the, the spirit was moving, man. When we wrote The Healing, I, 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 it was my first time writing um, with uh, myself, and Scott Baggett, and Jeffrey Steele, who uh, uh, we worked with on a number of different songs. He wrote a, a big hit mud uh, on the Roadhammer's uh, wheels record. And, um, but I had never actually sat down and written with him and we went to his, his place and, uh, we were kind of, you know, that pre prep in the songwriting session where you're just kind of shooting, shooting the shit and, and talking away. And, and, you know, I was telling him about, you know, the, at the time I was in, I was, you know, knee deep in, in a divorce and, and was going through that. And, and he had kind of, you know, touched base on, on the loss that he had suffered in his life, um, he had, uh, the loss of his son that had, that had happened years prior to that. And just talking about how getting through these painful things in our lives and, and how everybody just kind of needs a little healing. And we both kind of just stopped what we were doing, set down our copies and went directly upstairs. And, and Scott had already, um, was already working, going around on this kind of, you know, this slow R and B kind of, feel so when we slid in there the three of us just it, it just like exploded onto the page it was really really something man it it you can tell I, and i didn't know because you, you know 
I hate the way they do things now where, see, I used to, the, the thing I used to love most when I was growing up and when I knew that this is what I wanted to do for a living was I got off on the liner notes, right? I wanted the physical CD because I wanted to crack it open. I wanted to see who wrote the songs, who produced them, who mixed them, who mastered them, who wrote them, everything. And, and I hate this new digital world that we live in. I didn't know that you, that you wrote that with Jeffrey. I mean, that, but it makes sense listening to it now, it's like, oh, well, of course. And, and it's, it's just that song to me is just on another level. And, and saying that in perspective of this whole record put together to me is really saying something because collectively it's honest to God is just one of the best records I've listened to. And, and I don't remember how long, I mean, it's just, it was very well thought out, very well put together. I tell artists when I'm producing them all the time that you know, it's my job as a producer is to reflect, is to be a mirror and, and to project a great sound and feeling back onto your image. And, and it's got to tell a story. There's, it's just like making a movie. I like making records like, like directors make movies. There's, there's a beginning, there's a middle and there's an end and it all has to make sense. And you have to find a way to make, in this case, 13 individual songs that can mean and translate 13 different things, but that fit well into one storyline. And it, you did just such a great job with that on this record, man. It's just the theme of it all the way through. It is just amazing. It's wrapped with great songs, great production, and a style that I just, I just think, I think it's missing. Maybe that's why you're getting the reaction with it because there's n nobody's doing this. You know, it, it needs to be I, done. I, nobody's doing it. I think that's part of it. You know, and you know, that's also can be in the beginning anyway. Sometimes the the uh, the, st the stumbling block that people don't know what they they don't know what to do with it you know i've, I've had that um, kind of raise it's, it's it's had a few times where they they don't know well well what am i going to do with this it's not really what you would quote um modern rock is it's not country it's not real you know it's it's just it's got all of these elements kind of jammed together in, in one in one thing but it's it's not it's it's the congregation. That's what it is. It's its own, it's its own animal. And that's, what's exciting to me is, is to be able to do that. But it was a lot of fleshing out for the first, because I changed the way I wrote songs when I started this album. Cause I, I used to be, I used, as I was grow, you know, kind of raised on the, on the national way of songwriting, you get in the songwriter room with a couple of acoustic guitars and you hash out, you know, the hook in, in your, in your song and you beat it up for a few hours and there's, that's it. There's your song. Whereas this, these songs were, were, were created over, over months of a lot of times started off with riffs and drums. You know, we would just, my producer and I, Scott Saget would be just riffing and jamming and playing and coming up with, with feels and, and emotions musically first. And then to go back and, you know, I might have a title or I might have a, uh, an idea, but it was always kind of built from that. And and for a long time, I I did write to people just writing terrible music and going, what what on earth am I doing? This is going to be a miserable failure. And thought for sure, but I just kept going. I just you know crumple that one, throw it out, and go back and, and keep hitting it again and again until suddenly, after about six months of writing, it popped, and I got one. You know, we got welcome to the congregation. And, and then it was like, okay, now we have our, this is kind of our, our, um, our compass mark, you know, we have our setting go and, and then we just kept going towards that. And, and once we found that, you know, then you find, we were finding writers too. It's like, okay, I can, I'm hitting the mark with this guy and then with this guy and then no, not him, no, not him, this guy. And then it just, it turned into a little circle of, of people who kind of really, were helping me to, to, to get to the heart of what I wanted. Well, man, the, like I said, as a collective, it, it's, it's just really amazing. And, and like I said, if, if you've not had a chance to listen to it, go buy it, stream it, download it, whatever the hell it is that people do these days. It's available everywhere you buy or stream your music. It's Clayton Bellamy and the Congregation. The new album is Welcome to the Congregation. And it came out last Friday. It's available now. All right, I want to switch the conversation and ask you some hard questions. 
And yeah, man, fire away. All right. I I want to talk about, I was having a discussion. I, I was producing a record last night and I was having, a, everybody left and, and we were talking about songwriting. We were talking about artists and, um, you know, I had made the comment that it's been a while since I'd written a song, and and one of the the uh, the players on the session to me goes, I can understand that. I mean, why would you? And and that's such a profound statement because of where the industry is today. So I want to get inside your head for the the new artists that are listening out there, and they're trying to figure this whole thing out. Let me ask you, somebody that has had the success and continues to have the success. When you think, okay, I'm going to do this new thing. We're going to call it the congregation. I'm going to record a record. I'm going to cut a record. I'm going to put it out. In your head, what are you doing that for? We live in a society and in an age now where people really, in all honesty, don't value music the way that they used to. So people aren't buying music, right? So when you think, I'm going to put this project out, why are you putting the project out? What is the end goal for you? Because it's not to sell a platinum record anymore because very many people, not very many people are actually doing that. So for you, what is the purpose of having, putting so much time, effort, and passion into creating this project? Walk me through your thought process of, I am cutting this record because of this, and my goal with cutting this record is to get to this point right here. What are those things for you? Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, for me, it always starts at the very, the, the very base, the first part anyway, is always for selfish, complete selfish reasons. And I tell people this all the time, that if you can't do this just for you to begin with, you shouldn't be doing it. Like, don't, don't go do something else that makes you money if you're going to do this for, for money. If you, the best records are, are made always for those reasons. I think that's how the first Roadhammer record was made like that. Um, the, the last, the first Black Mountain Whiskey Rebellion record that I wrote on that, you know, that, that record was the same way. It, it blew up because it made it was made for the right to had the right spirit. Nobody was going, I'm gonna make a million dollars off of this. They're like, I have to make this. And for me that's what it was. It started out with, I have to make this record. This is what I want to do and this is what gives me joy. And it gives if it gives me joy, then hopefully it's gonna give other people joy and, and that will convey into uh, a monetary, you know, I'll be able to make more records and, and pay my bills and, and move on and move forward. But I think a lot of the secret is, you know, for new artists is to largely ignore what is going on around you, you know, um, commercially. I think a, a lot of people would probably say that that's a, that's a bad thing, but that's at least for me, what I've always done. I don't, I don't sit at home and listen to the radio and go, how can I write a song like Luke Combs? How can I have a hit like, like, you know, the new Taylor Swift. It's like, I, I don't, I never have worked like that. I, I always take in what's going on around me, but I, I, I don't operate like that. And, and I think that I've always had more work at just developing who I am as an artist and what I like and what I do. And then all that does is attract people who are looking for that thing. I get calls all the time. Hey, I need a rocking song. I need a, I need a great up-tempo rocking song because that's, I've done a lot of that stuff, but that people have, uh, you know, they like what I do and that's what they gravitate towards because I do me. And I think that's, that's the key. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that, that is, you know, and, and it's almost to the point where somebody, and I talk a lot about, you know, the, the gears of the music business and they all have to be working and turning together at the same time. If you, if you ever have one that's not, it's not going to go anywhere. And for an artist like you that is so well-rounded and that has all of those gears working, it almost seems like to me that that the music business is flipping and it's almost going back to where it was in the 50s and 60s. And that is we make music to use as an advertisement to book shows. Because when you have all three of those gears moving, people listen to the music, they like the music. More importantly, they want to engage with it. So they will listen to this record. And then when they see you're coming to their town, they're going to come to the concert. And that further creates that established connection and relationship 
with the fans because I think that's so important and something that you said a few minutes ago, you know, that you are, you made this record for you. One of the biggest things that I, I have a problem with, and, and it's the single sole reason why the music business is in the current condition that it's in right now. And that is because people are overwhelmingly getting into the music business to make money and not make music. I couldn't agree more. And I mean, you know, it, it, it shows a lot of times in, in the, the kind of music that's being made and why it sounds so homogenized and, and, you know, you, you can't tell one artist from another because they don't, you know, that, that doesn't, create any, you know, they don't want to stand out because that doesn't really help you a lot of times. I mean, doing what I do is not, you know, necessarily taking the easy road, um, but I've never really done that in my life. Why start now? Yeah, exactly. Why start now? Um, You know, and and that's not to say that I don't want monetary success, that I don't, you know, have bills to pay and, 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 you know, got to keep the lights on and keep doing things. But, uh, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I've done things my way and I've done things always from a creative standpoint and and that I have a, a a name for myself as that kind of an individual, that kind of an artist. And, and, and that's always when I set out, I wanted to be originally, I wanted to be Steve. I wanted to be those kinds of artists that people talk about with that reverence and go, wow, that guy is, he is an artist and, and that's kind of was always my goal. It wasn't like, man, that guy has a Maserati. I'm like, that's all right. You know, that's good too. But that was never my goal to get a Maserati. My goal was to, to, to be a part of those kind of legendary stories that you heard, you know, about, about Steve or Terrence Van Zandt or Guy Clark or those, you know, those, those songwriters that have become legends now. Uh, I wanted to be in that environment. I wanted to be part of those stories. Well, and I think that's important. I mean, you know, even the, the, the Steve Hurls of the world, I mean, you, you, you've got to look at it. I look at it anyway, from a perspective of those guys created and look, I I love Steve Earl. Steve Earl has not created anything in the last 10 to 15 years that will be remembered, but what he created in a period of time will live in legacy forever. He made an impact. It's not about what, and and sometimes as artists, especially songwriters, we songwriting and, and a lot of times artistry is almost like wine. Um, it's not fully appreciated maybe sometimes for years and years to come. It, it has to ferment. The audience has to find it. There, there's so many different conditions, but there was a couple of weeks ago, I saw somebody posted on social media. They were at, um, a number one, and I'm not going to say who, because I, I, I should, but I'm not going to, but they were talking about being at a number one party for that week's number one song on the country song on the billboard chart. I looked at it and Clayton, I'd never heard the song. And I thought, wow, that is where we are in an, in the industry, in the music business right now that they are over there throwing probably a $300,000 for a, a party for a song that it's for, for somebody that is in the business, engaged at it at a high level every day, I've never heard the song. And I was like, how can that be? I remember growing up when, when, when a song was high on the charts, even in the, we all, even today, if you stop an average country music fan or rock fan or whatever, and you ask them what they think the number one song in the country is, it's going to end up being a song that is somewhere between the top 10 and, and 50. People think if it's on the radio, it's a hit. But I remember thinking back and going, wow, we knew, we heard the hits. We knew what they were. And here they were celebrating a song that I had never even heard was like a two week number one. And I'm like, how can a song reach the number one spot on the highest chart in the world? And somebody that is involved in the country music industry have never even heard it, never even heard about it. And that to me plays with what you were saying is that maybe just maybe making music for you and going out and finding an audience that's going to resonate with it and and hold it over and take it personally 
that is the track. I've always said that if the music's right, the business will be there. And I think in your case, exactly what you're saying is right. This music is going to find an audience. You've already got a fan base, but this is going to increase it and go even further beyond because regardless of whether people believe it or not, there are independent artists out there you've never heard of that are selling 100,000, 200,000 records a year and are playing venues, selling them out at 5, 10, 15,000 people. And you've never heard their name, but it's because they just like you said, Clayton, they, they did it their way and they're making music specifically for their fans. They're making a type of music that resonates with a, a certain fan base and they don't, they're not worried about mainstream success. They're not worried about all of the fake bullshit that the industry puts out there that says, well, if it's not this and it doesn't look like this and it doesn't sound like this, then it's not good. And I think that's such a big problem that we face is, is I try all the time to create a distinction between what is popular and what is good. Just because something is popular does not make it good. I mean, listen to right. t- turn on your radio. Everything you're going to hear is considered popular. 2% of it's good. Very rarely well, when you I hear something that's good is actually popular. I agree. And I think what, you know, where because of the new music dynamic, people like, like us who, who like good music, not necessarily popular music, are you know, we can find our, our little niches, our little places to live in our, our own little algorithms online you know, with, with all of the music providers now and how people ingest music. And I think that's a lot of times too why people don't, won't, uh, a number one song will connect with people uh, like it used to where you won't know, hey, that song was number one because because you're, everyone is in their own little, in their own little niche, you know, on, on their own little algorithm on, on Spotify or Apple music or whatever. And they get kind of that music gets spoon fed to them now. So it's just a matter of, of, like you said, getting, getting on, on people's radar and, and finding those going out and finding those fans. This, this project for me, the congregation is the first band that I've ever played with where people instantly become, super fans you know the first uh, the first show that I played with this band uh, I got signed to my 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 publishing and management deal on one show you know as soon as they saw it they knew exactly what I was trying to do and they were they were sold and and I've never ever had that in my you know 20 plus years in the music business where somebody who's in the industry who see you know sees it and goes I'm in you know, and, and I knew I was onto something the instant that that was happening, you know. Well, I'll, I'll, it couldn't be happening to a better person. And I cannot wait to, to see the new show live. You're going to be here in Nashville. You were you were texting me something. I don't remember when it is, but you're going to be here in Nashville uh, fairly soon, right? Yeah, November 8th at the Canary Ballroom. That's right. It's a, uh, it's a private show, but uh, if there's people that want to come, you know, you can find me on the on uh, Instagram or, or uh, Facebook or any of those social platforms, and you can. Uh, I'm sure I can get you in. Well, I I know I'm gonna come hell or high water. I'm getting in the fucking thing. I can tell you that. Oh yeah, <laughs> I think I think you. That's already a given. You'll be there. <laughs> I'll make sure of it. I gotta go pick you up. Yeah, man, I can't wait to see it. And one more time, the new album is Welcome to the Congregation by Clayton Bellamy and the Congregation. Do yourself a favor. If you are a fan of music and you want to feel something, go buy this record, go stream it and share it with people. Because I think you're just, you're going to listen to it. You're really going to get something out of it. Such a positive record too. There's so much negative music out right now. I listened to it and just felt like lifted up, you know, and and that's what we all need. You said it earlier. We're all looking for an escape music. We go to the movies because we don't want to face reality. We want to see somebody else's reality to get us out of ours. This record will take you on a journey. It's a trip worth taking. 
and you don't even have to buy gas money. All you have to do is stream it or download it. For God's sakes, please fucking buy the thing. I, all this streaming, I mean, good mm-hmm. Lord. People, I, I said on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, it's like people don't bitch at all about walking into Starbucks and spending $6 on a cup of coffee. But you ask them to spend 10 bucks, 12 bucks on an album or 99 cents on a download and it, you've act like you've called their grandmother a whore. And it's, I don't, they think that music should be for free. And, and I say, everybody that thinks that music should be free has never had to pay to make it or pay to live it. I completely agree. You know, I, I, and I, and I think that people who appreciate good music, uh, appreciate that fact and, and, uh, and they, they get out there and, and they, they consume it still. And there's still, that still exists. I, I have to believe it. And, uh, you know, and that's, what this band is out there seeking is those, those people. Those are, those are my people. Well, they're good people to have. Be sure and check out Clayton Bellamy everywhere. Check him out online. Go follow him on Instagram. You can find out where the congregation is going to be coming to a city near you. And if you happen to be in town, wherever that is, do yourself a favor and go out and see probably one of the best shows that you'll ever see. Clayton, thank you so much for agreeing to be here. Um, I know it's early in the morning for you in Canada. So thank you for being here. And if there's anything you want people to know, give everybody your website and, and all of that information. Cause I don't want to miss it. Yeah. You can follow me at, at on Instagram at Clayton Bellamy. You can find the music at uh, congregationmusic.com, and And I'm on all, all of the socials, you know, Twitter and, and Facebook at Clayton Bellamy. And I just got to say, Steve, thanks so much for having me on the show. I love it. I listen to it all the time and uh, everybody out there should as well. And uh, give it the, give it the five star rating. Cause it's, it's great. I always get a kick out of, out of your guests and, and, and listening to uh, your insights on the biz. So it's, it's awesome. I'm, I really appreciate you having me on. I look forward to seeing you guys in Nashville on November 8th. Awesome, brother. Thank you so much for being here. And maybe who knows, we'll, we'll have a chance where we're in the middle of building the new uh, actual video podcast uh, studio. We'll get you in, we'll get it on camera and, and have a good time. But but I appreciate your time today. And uh, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it, brother. You got it. We'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode of the Steve Freeman Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Don't forget, go check out Clayton Bellamy and the new album, Welcome to the Congregation. It's Clayton Bellamy and the Congregation. You're absolutely going to love it. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Leave us that written review. Very, very, very important. Follow me on social media at the Steve Freeman and join my inner circle. Become a member of my my inner circle at thestevefreeman.com. That's the place. Guys, keep being creative. Keep pressing the boundaries. And there's nothing wrong with being independent. See you in the next one. Thanks for joining us for the Steve Freeman Podcast. Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow Steve on social media at, at thestevefreeman.com.